Amen, amen. Well, you guys can find your seats. It's been good to worship the Lord this morning, but we're going to continue to do that by listening to him and his word. So why don't you open up your Bibles, go with me to the book of Exodus. If uh, you don't have a copy of God's word, we want you to have one. And so our ushers are coming around right now. You can just get their attention and uh, you can get a copy of uh, God's word in front of you. Or you can follow along with us on the Bible app and uh, you can follow along in the scriptures there. Take notes if you want. We want you to be in Exodus chapter 7. We're kind of making our way through this book. And so as you turn to Exodus chapter 7 this morning, uh, I just got to tell you, I love D.C. You love D.C.? I got to tell you, it's a pretty sweet thing to live here. I remember when I was in eighth grade, okay, uh, I went on, at the end of our eighth grade year, like right before we were going into high school, we went on a big eighth grade class trip. Did anybody else do one of these kind of things? Okay, so I went on an eighth grade class trip to Washington, D.C. I did the math. I think the year was 1998. I know some of you were not even born. Thank you for rubbing that in. I appreciate it. But while I was there on this eighth grade class trip to D.C., I had a disposable camera. Some of you don't even know what that is, but, but we, we, we used to have these cameras that you'd like have to like take a picture and then like wind it up. You couldn't see any of your pictures until you took it to Walmart and had the pictures developed and you'd come back and see what you got. Well, I was thinking this week about the difference between the pictures that I took on that eighth grade class trip and the pictures that I take in D.C. now. See, when I was in eighth grade, I'm, I was a nerd, okay, like was not concerned about being cool at all. I thought everything that I looked at, it was so cool. And so I, I came back with an entire album worth of all these fuzzy pictures of just buildings and monuments. And, and, and I have no photography skills, so they weren't great. It would have made a horrible coffee table book. But by the time I got all these pictures home, my mom is looking through these. She's like, honey, why aren't you in any of these pictures? Because it never really occurred to me that I needed to actually be present in any of those. Here's what the pictures look like that we take now. When we, when we go down to D.C., right, we take selfies. Like, we go in front of the monuments, and I don't want a picture of just a monument. Like, and I realize this is probably a better way to do it because you're able to, you know, this is a memory. Like, we, we're, we're, we look back, and instead of just looking at the monument, we're like, I remember that day. I remember, you know, all, all of that. I, I get that that makes sense. That's probably a better way for us to take pictures. But I was thinking about how often... We use the selfie as our primary perspective for everything in life. Like everything runs through the filter of me and, and how this impacts me and how I feel about this and, and, and even uh, perhaps our view of God. It's possible that, that, that even in the way that we think about the Lord, we think, you know, well, what's God up to in, in, in my life? Or what has he done for me lately? Or what do I need for him to do for me today? Or, or, or uh, why should I go to church? What's in it for me? Or why should I get to know him? Or how does this make me feel? Or do I like this? Or what if I don't like what I'm hearing? And, and, and is it really all worth it to me? And we just, you get that? Sometimes we just kind of process the, through the filter of, of me. Okay, so I'm going to like pull back the curtain for just a minute, and, and, and one of the things that we do um, every week, we're, we're preaching God's Word. And one of the goals, when we're, when we're opening up uh, the, the Bible to, to preach God's Word, one of the goals that we have in this is to be applicational. 
Because we want to be doers of the word, James 1 says. We don't want to just hear it. We actually want to be obedient and, uh, to this. And so, so one of the questions that I'm asking every time we open it up and we normally just kind of work book by book, verse by verse, and we just kind of go through that, I'm asking the question, why, why does our church need to hear this message because we want to be obedient to it and so we're trying to bring some personal application but 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 if I can confess something to you sometimes I feel like I have to try to convince you uh, that that you should listen to this or give you some compelling reasons as to why this is going to benefit you personally so that you'll be interested in listening to what God's word has to say but the question I I, I just want to say what if the reason is simply to know God is that enough? Like, do, does, does the pursuit of knowing God, is, is that of supreme value to you? Do you want to know him? See, the more uh, you get to know the Lord, I think the more you're going to discover that that pursuit, just knowing God, we don't have to necessarily filter it through me, but, but just know him. But, but the more you do that, you're going to realize that that really is the most practical, life-giving, satisfying, joy-producing pursuit in the world. And so in that way, it is deeply, deeply personal. But I think the more you get to know him, you're also just going to grow in a desire that, that his glory would be on display. See, as a kid in D.C., I, I, I was actually, uh, I, I was just standing in awe of the sights themselves. I couldn't care less whether I was in the pick or not. And I think the Bible kind of helps reorient our perspective just a bit. It's not really about us, is it? Everything exists for his glory. And the more you get to know him, you're going to find that that's not really offensive at all. And you're going to care less about being in the pick yourself. You're just going to want him to be known. You're going to want him to be exalted. And I think as a church, if we get that, if we really wanted that, then I could tell you the big idea of the text this morning, and you'd get really excited about it. Here, here, here it is. Let me test you. This is, uh, the, this is the big idea that we're going to see in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. Take note of this. It's, it's really the title of the message. God is working for his glory. Man, if, if that is your heart's desire, then that ought to make you just go, yes. That's what I want. And, and I, my, my, my heart's longing is that, that that would be the driving passion and heartbeat of our church, that God is working for his glory. And, and if that doesn't excite you, then I'm telling you what we're about to read in chapter 7, these are going to be some really hard truths for you to swallow, and, and, and it might uh, be an indication that you're missing out on the very purpose for your existence. I know that's a, a really big statement, but I don't think that's hyperbole at all. That it's not even going to matter to you whether you're in the picture and how this affects me and what I want. You're, you're just going to see this. And, and for those of you who know him and who love him and are growing in a deeper hunger for Christ and, and for the passion and the glory of God, then, then you're just going to read this and you're just going to want to shout for joy. Yes! God is working for his glory. Let me show that to you. Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will 
harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God, we are just confessing to you that it's very possible that that, um, we've been treating you and and viewing you even just through the lens of um, ourselves and and how it impacts me and and, um, what I want and what I need you to do for me. And, and Lord, a lot of times we just kind of shrink you down into a little box that we can understand and, and that we're comfortable with, and, and, and we'll come back to you whenever we need you. But, Lord, I pray that you would just break that box apart today. I pray that you would give us a glimpse of your glory and that we might, maybe we need to be challenged in some areas about the way that we've been viewing you. Lord, if there's, if there's anything in our heart that has actually been seeking the glory ourselves, I pray that you would root that out. I pray that you would um, use the scalpel of your word to remove that cancer. I pray that our hearts, uh, the, the beating passion of our soul would be to know you and to see your glory on display. I pray that you would prove to us again that there is, there really is no God like our God. I pray that you would get all the glory that you deserve and that in that we would find our joy and satisfaction. And so we give you praise for it and ask that you'd uh, fill us with your spirit now that we might be more like you and be more in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you um, two ways then. God God is working for his glory. Here are two ways that God is doing that. Here's the first. Note this. He will be known. God is working so that he will be known. In fact, that's one of the reasons we have the book of Exodus is that we would just know God and we're about to get into the heart of the action and God here uh, through this is going to display who he is by bringing judgment on the nation of Egypt and delivering his people, Israel, out of slavery and and we've seen him using Moses And, and, and it's been really clear, Moses is not the hero of this story, right? I mean, we've been watching Moses just kind of wrestling with this. In fact, last week we still left Moses. He's still just kind of questioning and, and, and making excuses and struggling with God's plan. He's like, I don't, I don't speak so good, and, and, and Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. Well, here's, here's what God says to him, verse 1. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. 
God's like, listen, I, I know that you don't think you can do this, but just trust me, okay? Like, I've already got this taken care of. You're going to represent me. Your brother's going to do the talking. God is using Moses as a mediator. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, it, it doesn't say, I have made you like God. The Hebrew there just says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Not, not, that, not that Moses has actually become God, that he has become divine, uh, which is why translators say that it's, it's like God, but it's a little bit more direct. It's a little bit more forceful than that. Moses is functionally representing God to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, or God's like, when, when, when Pharaoh looks at you, when he talks to you, he's answering to me. And so as a mediator, the whole goal, the, the whole job is really to point to God. You think about this, for, for, for about three chapters now, we've been listening to Moses whine and complain and make excuses and trying to get out of this. What's really clear in the fact that God is using him is that God is the one who is going to save his people. He is the one that is going to get all the glory. The fact that he uses Moses, this imperfect mediator, just proves the power of God, and it really displays his glory in that. Moses is not the hero, but I, I, know, I, I know we've been uh, picking on him, so, so let's, uh, let's redeem him just a bit. Verse 6, I, I think um, finally, this is just um, a little bit encouraging for us. Finally, in verse 6, we, we start to see Moses uh, obeying and making some progress in his faith. He goes and does just as the Lord commanded him. That's encouraging for those of us who kind of struggle along with Moses and trusting the Lord, right? But as, as a representative of God then, Moses is really pointing us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the great mediator. He is God. And the only reason that we can know the Father and have a relationship with him is through Jesus. God will be known through his Son, you want to know God? You want to see him? You want to see his glory? Do you want to grow in your understanding of who he is? Put your faith in Christ. Believe in him. Look to Jesus. He is the great mediator. But then there's also this difficult truth to grasp about God here in verse 3. Check this out. God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will not listen to you. What do we do with that? <laughs> Honestly, th th this is kind of uh, theologically challenging, and I am telling you, if God's glory is not your greatest desire, is not your greatest concern, you're really just a little more interested in, in, a, in a God that you can understand, that you're comfortable with, that's suited to your liking, you're going to struggle with this, Okay. Here's, here's what's happening. We're seeing a, a showdown between opposing forces. This is, this is God versus Pharaoh, good versus evil. But what the book of Exodus is trying to make explicitly clear so that we don't miss this is that God is sovereign over this war. He is sovereign over this battle. And everything that happens, happens according to his plan. Everything that is going to happen is going to happen exactly as he designs it, as he intends it. 
Okay, so this is not like a boxing match where God comes out of the corner, he's kind of dancing around and giving a couple test jabs and, and see how Pharaoh responds and see if he can get him to catch him off guard and off balance and then boom, go for the knockout punch. The, the, the reason that we have confidence that God is in control in this fight is not because he's bigger and he has a better right hook. The reason here, God is actually, what we see him doing is he's moving Pharaoh around like a pawn in the ring just the way he wants him. God is actually orchestrating his plan and using Pharaoh for his purposes. He, is, he says, I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't listen, so that I can punish him. And if, you're, if you think about it for just a minute, you kind of, like, first off, how is, how is that fair? How, how, how is that fair to Pharaoh? And, and secondly, how can God do that without being responsible for evil? It's, it's not like, we're, nece- we're not necessarily feeling bad for Pharaoh. I mean, he has literally been the worst bad guy in the Bible so far, Okay. We're not necessarily feeling bad for him. And I do think that I can, I can see how God can use evil to accomplish his, his purposes. But, but, but this seems a little bit more direct than that. It seems like God is actually responsible. Like, like God is causing Pharaoh to do evil so that he can bring judgment. I'm going to confess to you that there, there's, there's a lot of mystery here. There are some that we just don't understand about this, and yet there are things that we do know. There's some theology that's really going to help us kind of uh, wrestle with this and, 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 and maybe come a little close to understanding what's really going on and how God is actually not responsible here. And, and, and one of the things I think that we need to remember is our understanding of man our understanding of how sin and the fall has impacted and, and, and affected us. See, see, the doctrine of sin is going to help us remember this. Pharaoh was already evil. So God, God didn't have to put evil into Pharaoh's heart, okay? The Bible's really clear for us on this, that we are all sinners. We are by nature, children of wrath carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are born in sin. And unless God does a work in us, in our hearts, we are rebellious at heart and we want to sin. We are enemies of God. We are evil. Uh, Martin Luther um, really helps me on this point. I remember reading uh, one of his books when I was in seminary, the work Bondage of the Will, and I'm telling you, by the time I got done with that book, I I put that down and said, this is probably one of the most important books I've ever read outside of the Bible. I would highly commend it to you. But Martin Luther just kind of helps us maybe really understand what's going on. here's, Here's how he says this. He says, God moves and works of necessity even in the ungodly. But... He works according to what they are. Which means that since they are evil and perverted themselves, that when they are impelled to action by this movement of divine omnipotence, they do only that which is perverted and evil, because that's what they are. God uses evil instruments. And he goes on to say it's kind of like you know riding a horse. And let's just say you're riding a horse, but this horse only has two or three good legs. Well, you're going to have a hard time riding that horse. That horse is going to run poorly. 
And that's not the fault of the rider. That, that, that really says something about the horse. The horse is going to go badly unless the horse is healed. And so what he's saying is, so, so Pharaoh is becoming an instrument for God to use in this narrative. And because he's an evil instrument, what would we expect him to do but evil? You see, God would actually have to change his heart. His heart would have to change before he could do anything but evil. But, but, but it actually goes further because verse 3 tells us that God actually hardens his heart. It's like, it's like God is making it worse. So, so is God at fault for, for what's happening to Egypt because of the, the, the stubbornness of Pharaoh? And honestly, I think this is part of the tension that we are supposed to feel as the drama of the ten plagues unfolds. That, that we're seeing the foolish, evil, stubbornness of Pharaoh. And it's like, dude, if he would just listen to God and let the people go, this wouldn't happen. But over and over in the, in the plagues narrative, it's, it's, it's kind of repeating this and making this explicitly clear that God is sovereignly orchestrating to make sure that Pharaoh won't listen so that he can bring judgment on Egypt. So, so maybe, maybe this will help. Luther, Luther might be a little bit more help on us in, in, in thinking this way. As sinners, okay, we want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. But then God's word steps in and says, no, 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 no. Wrong way. Turn around. But because we want to go that direction, then God's word is standing in our way and it irritates and it offends our rebellious hearts and our desires. So, so think about what's happening then. God is not coming over here like secretly whispering into Pharaoh's ear like, hey man, I, I need you to do something like really evil, but don't tell anybody that I told you to do it. Okay, I want you to take the fall for this. That's not what happened. God is actually coming and he says to Pharaoh, he speaks this word, he says, he is God and Pharaoh must obey and submit to him. And so Pharaoh's heart and his will are naturally offended by that word. It's like all God has to do is just touch Pharaoh's heart and it recoils in anger and, and, and he is hardened in that. And so because God knows what's in Pharaoh's heart, he is able to harden it, not by making it evil, but simply by acting knowing how his evil heart will respond. It's important that we remember this. God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. We can't blame God for the evil that's in our heart and the choices that we make because we really want to sin and go our own way. But if you're thinking about this and, and, and you really kind of dig at it a little bit, you might be wondering, well, why wouldn't God just change his heart then? Like, he could do that. I think we actually get an answer to that. Verse 5 is going to give us a little bit of reason as to why God is acting the way he does. Verse 5 says this, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and I bring out the people of Israel from among them. 
This is part of the purpose of hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he can bring the ten plagues and lead Israel out of slavery. God is orchestrating every single detail so that through this display of judgment and then deliverance, he will make himself known to a nation who are not his people. In fact, you remember, we, we've, we've already been kind of wrestling with this a little bit when the first time that Moses shows up to Pharaoh and says, hey, God says, let my people go. You remember that? Here, here's what Pharaoh said, chapter 5. I've got it for you on the screen. Pharaoh looks at that and he says, who's the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't have to listen to him. I do not know the Lord. God is saying here, he will be known. And he is working to leave no doubt that he is the Lord and he will get the glory. God is working for his glory. Now, if that rubs you the wrong way, you, you might need to realign your perspective just a bit because we, we tend to uh, view everything through the individualistic lens of self, right? But, but, but here's, here's what the Bible is making explicitly clear to us. God does not exist for us and primarily for our benefit and our, our, our personal enjoyment. It's oftentimes the way we look at him. But we need to know this, that everything that he made exists for his glory. And it is his absolute grace that he would transform enemies into sons and daughters and, and, and teach us to find satisfaction and find joy in him and rightly desire his glory as he's designed for us to do. That is a work of God. But I'm praying that that really is the heartbeat of our church. I want us to grow in this. We, we, we want his glory, and we want his glory to be on display so that all would know him. And that's what's going to happen here. Because of the way that God is working, we're going to see who God is on display. His wrath against sin is going to bring him glory because it displays his justice and that he sets all things right. Our God does that. But his judgment also magnifies his mercy and his grace. Just think about it. Like Israel is no better, no more deserving than Egypt. And just as in the next few chapters, you know, this, it's going to display the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, the rest of the book is actually going to cause us to question whether Israel's hearts are just as hard as Pharaoh's. It is always his undeserved grace that he would choose to save any of us. But that, that, that while we're in awe of his sovereignty then, there's also an expectation of our responsibility to respond to him. He will be known. And one day, God's word says, everybody is going to acknowledge that he is Lord, Philippians chapter 2. But that doesn't mean that every knee is going to bow willingly out of love and adoration. So listen, listen. What this means for you, and I say this with all love in my heart, you will know the Lord. But you will know him either 
as your judge or as your savior. He will be known. He is going to make himself known. I think this is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3, he, he picks up on this for us and he says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Do you pick up on what he's saying there? That's Israel. They were supposed to have learned this lesson from Pharaoh in his hard heart, but they didn't. And so they stand as a warning to us today. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We, we are sinners, all of us, who deserve God's wrath and judgment. But God sent his son to die in our place, and he poured out his wrath on him. He crushed his son so that the penalty was paid in full, and we can be forgiven. And enemies can be adopted as sons and daughters and believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ and know him as Savior. And so I think this is kind of a warning for us. This is an encouragement. As we look at Pharaoh, we need to take this into consideration. Do not harden your heart. But I also think this, this, this ought to motivate us and compel us to get this news to the nations. There is good news in the gospel, and we want to tell everybody. We don't want anybody to experience God's judgment. Tony Marita said it this way. We want God's enemies to become God's people. And I know, like, you, you might not think that you have enemies, but you have some of those people that just kind of rub you the wrong way, some people at work or somebody that you, that, that neighbor that parks too close or whatever it is, those people in your heart, you just kind of, you struggle with them a little bit. Can you see your enemies as the mission? Man, we, we, we shouldn't be sneering in our hearts at people that we don't like, just waiting and, and, and hoping that God is going to strike. Jesus tells us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It, 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 this, this is how it happens when, when grace hits us and we begin to realize that I don't deserve it either, but because he's been merciful, because he's been gracious to me, that stirs my heart for others. And we see that God is sending us out to the nations because he wants us to take the gospel. It says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that motivates us to get going on this. Who's the person, who is it that you need to be sharing the gospel with? Who is it that needs to hear this? Can I urge you? Don't wait. Don't wait. We, Jesus is coming again soon, and we want them to know him as Savior. But I want to read, I want to read something to you from Isaiah chapter 19. I've got this for you on the screen. This is, this is years later. This rocked me. I read this a few weeks ago, and, and I want you to hear God's heart in this as well. This is a, a future hope that the, the prophets uh, speak years later, says this, it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors. He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. 
And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Hear God's heart for the nations. God's plan has always been to bless the nations by sending the deliverer, the Savior. He is the Savior even for the Egyptians. And if you're not Jewish in here today, you ought to be saying, praise God. He will be known. And we have the joy of being used by God to live sent right here, right now, to make him known. We could end there, but, but, but I do want to finish this. There's, there's a second way. Let me just note this. The second way that God is working for his glory is this. He will have victory. He's working so that he will have victory. So God knew how Pharaoh was going to respond. So before he starts throwing down with the ten plagues, he has Moses and Aaron go in and fire a warning shot because Pharaoh's going to want to see what these guys are made of. And so he tells him, verse 9, he says, hey, take your staff. Remember that? We got the staff. The staff is the symbol. This is representing God's presence and God's power with Moses. It's the reminder for him. He's not alone. And he's not actually the one that has to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and do the work. God's going to do that. But, but God has made him the mediator. All right? So he's made him like God to Pharaoh. So Moses has got to step in. He says, take that staff, and I want you to cast it down, and it's going to become a serpent. And Moses is like, man, we've we, we got to do the whole snake thing again. Like, you remember the last time he did that? He's running away from this thing, kind of freaking out about the fact that there's a pretty large snake right here. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's going to bite you know, Pharaoh, it's going to eat him, and that'll, that'll make this a whole lot easier. Maybe, maybe that would be easy, but, but he goes, and he just obeys, and he casts it down, and, and Aaron takes his uh, staff, and it becomes a serpent. But then, check this, verse 11, the wise men, the sorcerers, the magicians, they also did the same by their cer- secret arts. And we don't know, maybe that was like sleight of hand, illusionist kind of thing, but it, it actually seems more likely that these guys got mixed up in something demonic, some occult practice. I mean, this is some bad juju going on here. Moses might have been a little skittish in this. He's like, like, like I, I didn't know that. You, you, you've got to be kidding me. They can do it too? Like now we got a bunch of snakes. God, you didn't tell me this was going to happen. And so we're, we're having a little bit of a stare down here. Who blinks first? But I think there's a little bit more going on here than just some macho show of force and, and, and two sides trying to intimidate, intimidate one another. This is, this is a preview. God is not afraid to give you a spoiler alert for how this battle is going to go down. Okay, How many of you are like me and you hate spoilers? You don't want to know anything ahead of time. All right, so I'm going to guess that the rest of you are like my wife who wants to uh, read ahead and get the plot line because she doesn't want to have any surprises, right? I do not understand that at all. I have not seen Endgame yet. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. I want to be able to experience it. But, but here's what God's doing. He's giving us a preview of what's going to happen. Spoiler alert, God wins. But that doesn't get you out of coming to church for the next few months, okay? Because I know how some of you are thinking. But, but, but look at what happens. Verse 12, he says that each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Just in case there was any doubt who's going to win this battle, 
God's like, go ahead, give me your best shot. Send a bunch of snakes in. I can handle that. He will have victory in the end. And this word to, to swallow up, it's, it's actually used only two times in the book of Exodus. And the next time we see it is in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, when the children of Israel are celebrating what God did to Pharaoh's army. Here's what they say. He, they say, God, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them up. They're thinking about Pharaoh's army and how the water covered over them and they sank to the bottom of the Red Sea after God's people had walked through the parted waters on dry land. God is going to win. But Pharaoh's not faced by this preview. Verse 13, still his heart was hardened and he would not listen. But check this, look at this. At the end of verse 13, this is crucial for us to get this. As the Lord had said. Didn't take him by surprise at all. He already said this was going to, he, he called it. He knew this was going to happen because he's still sovereign. So here's what this means for us. We are holding on to the promises of God. That he tells us that one day he is coming again and when he does, he is going to set all things right and death will be swallowed up in victory and his enemies are going to be defeated by just a word from his mouth. And when he comes, because he's now our savior, we get to share in the victory of Jesus too. Maybe some of you just need that encouragement today. That when we see that we're putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, don't forget who wins in the end. But one of the things I think maybe we really just need to get is a bigger, better view of God in all of this. There's no God like our God. And he is working for his own glory. And that ought to be the passion and the desire of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would make us see how great and glorious. God, would you show us again that there really is joy and satisfaction in knowing you. And again, God, we just ask forgiveness for the ways that we uh, put ourselves first and, and we even uh, look at you and view you through the lens of um, me and, and what's going on in my world and how I feel about this. Lord, would you just reorient our perspective and help us just to see you? I pray that we would see that you are great and glorious and that you, have, you will have victory and that we would find joy just putting our hope and trust in you and that we would want to see you on display. That we would long for others to know you. But God, we'd be reminded even today that some people are going to know you as judge. And so I pray that we'd be faithful to make you known as Savior. God, would you just work to bring us to yourself. I know nobody's looking around, but if, if you're sitting there today and you're just kind of feeling, I don't know that I know Jesus. Today is the day. Do not harden your heart as in the day of testing. You can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today and know that because he has victory, you will share in that victory and you will have eternal life with Jesus. 
So where if, if that's you, I would just encourage you to pray. Right where you're at. You don't have to pray it out loud, but in the quietness of your heart, just say, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. God, I know that I deserve wrath. I deserve your judgment. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins in my place. Please forgive me. Please save me. And if you do that, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have the confidence that you are going to live with him for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that you would do that in us. I pray that you'd motivate us to make you known. You deserve the praise. So we're holding on to these promises, lifting high the name of Jesus in worship. It's in his mighty, powerful name that we pray.